0: Oh, man, uh, I have to, uh, I really need to jump right in and, uh, and get right into the message, but I have to say thank you um, to so many people. There's just too many people. The list is way too long, but of course, I have to say thank you to uh, Pastor Sam and Cheryl for one, for taking care of my daughter. Man, like she was your own. Man, that was just, uh, just too much. You guys are too much. Um, And I just wish that I could just hug you all day long. I really do. Um, And um, uh, not just taking care of my daughter, but um, they flew our whole family home so we could spend Christmas with our families. And that was such a magical thing because um, this was actually the very first time that the kids spent Christmas with their grandparents in, in their life. Uh, They'd never uh, got to do that before. And uh, uh, you guys made that happen. And so uh, I was just like, someone, I think uh, Dan was asking me, he was like, uh, so are you preaching a lot while you're here? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm preaching like a hundred times or something. I don't know. It was a lot, you know, and he was like, man, they're making you work. And I said, you don't understand. I said, they brought my kids home, dude, for Christmas. I said, I'll take Sam out back to the church and make out with him if he wants me to. (laughs) And, uh, and Dan was like, Dan was like, how was it? And, uh, <laughs> I said, better than you think. <laughs> so, I would do just about anything for this guy. And, uh, just about. And, um, it was really just such a magical thing to see them be able to spend Christmas with the grandparents. So. Man, thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. And uh, thank you to Chris and Emily Miller. I don't know. Chris is just, I don't even, I don't, does Chris actually come to the services? I'm not sure he can sit down that long uh, in one place. But uh, uh, there he is, my man. I love you, dude. Uh, He really makes it happen, doesn't he? At least he looks like he does, because he is flying all over the place. And, uh, and then Emily, I mean, they always take care of me. They take care of our family, let us stay with them. And so thank you so much for letting us uh, drive you guys crazy at the house and stuff. It's just been really awesome. There, there's just, uh, there's too many uh, people to say thank you to, but uh, uh, I am just so thankful to this church uh, for being who you are. Okay, enough of that. Right? Uh, we want to get into the Word. Are you guys ready to get into the Word? And I have to get in. There's just so much I could say to you. I, I love you guys so much. There are so many wonderful things that I could say that are in my heart, but we have to get into the Word because we don't have time. All right? So grab your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 7. Because I think that this is a very important subject when it comes to the mission uh, because uh, there really just is, there is so much that you can accomplish uh, So much what we would call really good stuff that you can accomplish in the mission, in the power uh, of the flesh. Hey, man, what's up? I didn't even see you sitting down there. What a nice surprise. Um, There's so much, sorry, there's so much we can accomplish in in the ministry, in the power of the flesh. It's really possible to do that. And uh, it's really awful because... The problem is, is that you go through all the trouble, and it's so much harder when you do it in the flesh, you go through all the trouble of doing it in the flesh, and you finally do accomplish something that people would call good, and the problem is that once you even do that, um, God doesn't even want it when you're done, and uh, so it's really awful, but it is possible, and so we really have to tackle this issue, okay? Now, we're we're looking in Esther chapter 7, so just to give you a little bit, bit of background very quickly... Uh, The story of Esther is really the story about a reversal of destiny. The whole story is about this great reversal that God pulls off. The villain of the story is named Haman. I call him horrible Haman. And uh, the heroine of the story is this Jewish lady named Esther, who was chosen from all the young virgins of the land to replace Vashti as the queen of Persia. Now, Esther's guide in the story is her elder cousin Mordecai, who actually raised her as his own child. Now, the power-hungry Haman, he was filled with rage one day when Mordecai refused to bow to him. So Haman swore revenge, and he hatched this evil scheme to not only kill Mordecai, but to wipe out His entire race. It's a really, it's a great thriller. You really need to read it. It's wonderful. I mean, not that, that that's wonderful, but the story is wonderful. So he wants to wipe out his entire race, which would mean the death of the beautiful Queen Esther. Now, Esther is the only book in the Bible where God is not mentioned. Now, the writer uses this literary technique in order to point us to the doctrine of God's providence, which is where he works unseen through people in order to accomplish his will. And the entire story turns on what appears on the surface to be mere coincidence. For example, the the story's biggest reversal happens actually in the previous chapter, 6, and it all hinged on the fact that the king simply couldn't get a good night's sleep. It's all things like this. Now, this makes Esther very relatable to us, Because we live in a world where we cannot see God, and yet he is always there working behind the scenes through secondary causes to bring his will to pass in our life. So just like in Esther, God is always working to bring about a great reversal of destiny, to bring salvation and victory to his children while bringing the evil schemes of the wicked back upon their own head. It's always what God is busy doing. But there is more to this story. The story of Esther is really about a battle between two guys, two men. It's a battle between the evil, the horrible Haman and the mighty Mordecai. And Esther, poor Esther, is caught right in the middle. And just like there are two men in the story, there are also two men inside each one of you. We have the old man of the flesh and we have the new man of the spirit. And we, like Esther, are caught right in the middle. The inspirational application of this classic story teaches us how God is always trying to work in your life to bring about this reversal in each one of us to overcome the flesh so that we might live a spirit filled life that is ruled. By the spirit, instead of being ruled by the flesh. In the story, Haman, he pictures this power-hungry and bloodthirsty picture It's a bloodthirsty picture of our flesh, whereas Haman, or I'm sorry Mordecai, pictures uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, this flesh is something that every believer carries through his life, and Mordecai pictures the Holy Spirit, who is our guide and our comforter, just like he's pictured with Esther, who is the king's bride, like us, the bride of Christ. Now, the climax of this story takes place right here in chapter 7, where the heroine confronts. Do you guys know the story? Everybody pretty much know the story. Am I? Is this a waste of time? Okay, just trying to give a little bit of background. Okay, but in chapter seven, this is where the heroine of the story, Esther, finally confronts her evil villain of the story. This is where she confronts Haman to say he is the bad guy in front of the queen, in front of the king, to, in order to plead for her own life and to plead for the life of all of her people. Now, I really wish that I had time. Uh, to cover the entire story, but we can't tonight. What I really want us to do is I want us to kind of zoom in on this climactic moment because it is here that we really find the most important lesson to teach all of us who are currently waging a similar war to, between our flesh and our spirit, just like the young and very courageous Esther. You see, the spirit-filled life that God wills for each and every one of us is under threat. It's always under threat because of the evil machinations of our flesh. Far too often we find ourselves right here in the middle of this story where our flesh is ruling the better part of our lives and the Holy Spirit, just like you see Mordecai in chapter 4, is on his knees grieving and walking through the streets of our souls wailing grieving because of our sin. So how do we overcome our flesh? How do we really confront and conquer our flesh? That's really what we see in chapter 7 is where in that picture where Esther finally confronts and conquers the flesh. How do we do it? There is a whole lot that could be said on this issue. Let's just move to the climax of the story and really examine Haman's undoing. And and right here is where we'll find the most crucial crucial lesson on this issue, how to conquer and confront our flesh. So to put it simply, Esther chapter 7 really reads kind of like a thriller where the villain is caught red-handed. That is actually the title of this message, to be caught red-handed. And really that, to be caught red-handed, is what I believe to be the, the secret to overcoming your flesh, kind of in a nutshell, in order to conquer and confront your flesh, you must be caught red-handed. Now, there are very few things that are as sobering as being caught red-handed. Has that, has that ever happened to anybody? Have you ever been caught red-handed? I mean, really bad? Now I did once. No, actually a lot, but uh, uh, there was one time in particular, okay, so Mindy, we got four kids, so Mindy's down there, and she's juggling all the kids, she's got two of them, you know, on her back, and she's making dinner, you know, and cleaning at the same time, and she's getting all this stuff done, so I look at all of this that's going on, and of course, I said, listen, babe, I really need a nap, (laughs) And, uh, and she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, yeah, that'd be great, you do that, that'd be awesome. Please, by all means, go take a nap. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm just so tired, so I need to go take a nap. So I go upstairs to take a nap, and of course I lay on my bed and I start looking at my phone, I'm watching something on Amazon Prime, right? And uh, so she comes walking through the door of the bedroom, and uh, she's, like, she's like, okay, listen, um, if you're going to take a nap, then you got to turn the phone off and actually take a nap, right? You can't just say that you know, and then come up and watch TV shows. And I'm like, yeah, that's true, punk, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, I'll just put that down and I'll take a nap. So she walks out the door and I just grab my phone and I start watching the show again. And she forgot something and turned around and walked right back in the room and I'm just sitting there with the phone and she's like, what? And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I started dying laughing I couldn't help it because I was so busted. I mean, as soon as she walked out the door, I just picked the phone back up, and I started watching it. And then she walked right back in, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, she was just like, what are you doing? It was so funny, and uh, I never actually got that nap. But uh, there's really not much that is more sobering than when you're just so busted, right? When you're not just caught, but you are caught red-handed with no deals, No defense, no doubt about your guilt. You are just caught, right? Now, there are two ways to be caught. You can be caught by surprise, or you can turn yourself in. And there is a chain reaction that is not necessarily automatic, but a chain reaction that is very necessary to overcome in the flesh. And it kind of works like this. This is kind of how the dominoes fall. It Starts with guilt, and then to grace, and then to gratitude. Those three things. That's kind of how it falls. And it really has to fall in that order. First guilt, then grace, then gratitude. If you wonder why you don't love Jesus like you should, why your life does not more naturally rise in gratuitous service to Christ and to resist your flesh, it is because you do not fully understand and appreciate his grace. You don't fully appreciate what he did for you and how much uh, his blood cost. And what stands in the way of your understanding of his grace is your lack of awareness of your own guilt. As you become aware of your guilt, you naturally appreciate his grace and your heart naturally becomes more filled and begins to answer with gratitude. So let's talk about the first one, okay? The first one guilt. Okay, this is the first kind of domino in this chain reaction. And this is what we see in the first six verses of chapter 7, is we really see, it's actually in the whole chapter, but I just want us to look at the first six verses as she confronts the problem. But we're going to kind of work it backwards. We're going to kind of work from verse 6 up to verse 1. There's no real reason to do that. It's just weird, and I like it. So we're going to go from 6 up to verse number 1. And in verses 5 and 6, that's where she identifies... The villain. That's where she really confronts him. The king asks in verse 5, when she tells him, she's like, you know, this is what's happening. He says, who is he and where is he that would presume to do such a thing against the queen? And she's like, it's that guy right there. He's there at the table, right? It's just the king and Haman and Esther are there at the banquet of wine and they're having this banquet. And she's like, he is the bad guy right there. And of course, Haman's like, what? You know, he's really caught out in that moment. So she she confronts him right there in verses 5 and 6. We need to identify, first of all, if we're going to be guilty, we have to identify that the source of our problems is the flesh. You've got to identify the source of our problem is our flesh, We're always trying to figure out why we keep doing the things that we are doing, and we have a multitude of reasons that we make up. Is it my nature? Is it my nurture? People have been asking that question for ages. What's the answer to that question? Is it my genetics? Is it my genes? What is the reason? Is it some event in my life? What is the reason why I keep doing the things that I'm doing? The reason... Uh, why we keep doing the things that we're doing is because of our flesh. The reason why we sin is because of our flesh. The flesh is the villain of your story. That's what this is trying to picture for you. The flesh is the villain of the story. The flesh is an insatiable monster that will not stop until you're dead. That is the truth. Your flesh only wants what is wrong. And more specifically, your flesh really wants not just what is self-destructive. Because we understand that about our flesh. It always wants what's bad for you. That's the reason why guys think we're going to pick up chicks if we, if we drive too fast and drink too much and smoke cigarettes. I don't know why we ever thought that. But guys think that that's cool. And then you have some stupid girls out there that think that's cool too. Very few. Most girls are pretty smart. But there's a few out there that are like, man, he's a cool guy, you know. And we do that stuff, and we know the flesh is self-destructive, but it's more than that. The flesh is more than just self-destructive. Your flesh specifically wants those things that are going to bring displeasure to the heavenly Father. That is really specifically what it wants. It's like in, don't turn there, but in Genesis 28, verses 8 and 9, when you read about Esau, and he's trying to pick a wife. He's like, man, what wife should I pick? And it says, and when he saw that the wives of Canaan, that they didn't bring any pleasure to his dad, Isaac, he said, well, I'm going to go pick them. So he goes down to Ishmael. He's like, where are the ladies at, Ishmael? Because he knew that if he picked a wife from there, that it was going to bring all kinds of displeasure to his dad. Now, what a picture of how our flesh works. It's not just that it's self-destructive. We like that kind of self-help talk. I don't want to do this self-destruct. No, it's more than that. Your flesh is specifically picking things in your life that are going to bring displeasure to him. That's what your flesh does. That's the reason why Paul says in Romans seven eighteen, he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. It is irredeemable. You can't make any deals with it. You can't fix it. The flesh is the villain of the story. And that's what Esther does here right off the bat. She's like, he is the enemy and the adversary. It is the evil Haman. She confronts her problem. But you also recognize not only does she confront the problem, but she also notices that she she says here that she's also complicit in the problem. She's also complicit in the problem. See, Esther uh, had to, uh, is like, She had to come to him because Haman wanted to kill her. But she says, if you look in verse 4, she says, listen, I had to come to you because he's trying to wipe us out. He's trying to kill us. And she says something really weird here that I I really struggled with at first as I was reading it. And she says, if he had only wanted to sell us as bondmen and bondwomen, as slaves, then I would have held my tongue. But he's like trying to wipe us out, so I had to come and plead for my life to you. If he only wanted to sell us off as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. I'm like, really? He wouldn't have said it. You're the queen, all of Persia. And you just would have been like, well, you know, if you want to sell us as slaves, I mean, that's cool, but if you want to wipe us out, then I've got to to speak up. Now, why would she say that? The reason why she's saying that is because Esther knows the reason why they're under Persian rule in the first place is because of Israel's sin. That's the reason they got sold into the hands of their enemies in the first place. The only reason why she's even there is because of the sin of Israel. She recognizes that and she recognizes that she is complicit in this sin. And that is what we must recognize, is that our flesh is the source of the problem, but our problem is a sin problem that we are complicit in. It's not just our flesh made me do it kind of thing. No, our flesh is the source of our problem, but we are complicit in the sin. And that's why we are struggling and why our flesh is ruling our lives. Do you want to know why that is? It's not rocket science, as my wife Says to me all the, she says that to me all the time. I'm like, what about this? And she's like, it's not rocket science, Brian. If you don't eat a bunch of Twinkies at midnight, then you don't get fat. It's not rocket science, Brian. She's always telling me that. And here, the same thing here, it's not rocket science. The reason why you do what you do is because, are you ready for it? You love sin more than you love God. That's really all that it is. And we must recognize the source of our problem, and the source of our problem is our flesh, and we are complicit in the sin. You know, we're, we're always like, you know, I think that my life could really change if I could just change my environment and get some friends around me that appreciate me, and I could just create kind of a non-toxic environment. Man, we, i Would you guys, please stop talking. If you're talking like that, would you please stop talking like that? You've been looking at way too many memes on Instagram. Okay? The reason, if you were on an island by yourself, you would figure out a way to sin. Because we love it. It's just, it's so tasty. We love sin. It's so good. And we just love it all day long. So our flesh is the source of the problem, and that is why Esther comes to the king in verses 1 and 2 to plead for her life, and that is what you must do. You need to have what my dad used to call a come-to-Jesus meeting, right? Have your dad's ever said that to you? anybody's dad's ever said that? Hey, son, we're going to have a little come-to-Jesus meeting, which is really not a good thing to say to your kids because it makes them, like, not like Jesus, Right? Because that's never good when they say that. Your kids are like, I don't want to meet Jesus, you know, because it's like always bad when they say that. But you need to have a come to Jesus meeting right here, just exactly like she does, wherever you come around the table and it's just you, your father, and your flesh, and you're going to deal with some stuff. That's exactly what she does here. You need to come to that place where you can identify the problem and you can say to your heavenly father, my flesh is the villain, which means I am the villain. You have to be able to come to your father and say, I'm guilty. We, we really have a hard time with that. We always want to blame everybody else. But if we're ever going to confront and conquer our flesh, we've got to be able to come to that place where we can say, I am guilty. But as soon as you try to do that, that's when you slip into verses 7 and 10. Because that's when Haman starts pleading for his life. In verse 7, Haman starts pleading for his life, and that's exactly what your flesh is going to start doing. Your flesh is going to start trying to make a deal It's going to be like, oh, man, just one more time. You know, just the one more time. I promise it's the last time. It'll never be another time. And it makes all the deals with you. And you can see right here in this particular point. The flesh is going to, just like Haman, where he goes onto Esther's couch, uh, you know, because he can realize that there's evil concerning him with the king. And he comes onto Esther's couch and he is condemned, right? Because the king comes in and he sees him on Esther's couch, which was really kind of breaching propriety. And the king thinks that he's trying to force himself upon the queen. And it doesn't say that he said anything, but it's just kind of a look to the chamberlain, and then it's just a black bag right over Haman's head, right? I wish that I could have been there to see that, where he's like, please, Esther, please. The king walks in, and he's like, is he going to force himself on the queen in front of the king? And he just kind of looks at the chamberlain, like, just gives them the nod, and then just black bag right over the head. That's exactly what happens to him, and he is afforded no opportunity to make a deal, And the flesh will always want to give his defense. Not only will he want to make a deal, but he will always want to give his defense. He will always want to say, listen, if you really, if you knew my situation, that's usually how our justifications always start. If you only knew what I had been through, right? If you only understood, that's what the flesh says. Listen, I don't want you to condemn me. I need you to understand me. That's what we say. We always want to give our defense. But when the black bag goes over Haman's head, head, he's afforded no opportunity for defense. And your flesh will also cause you to doubt your guilt. It will claim, listen, it's all hearsay. It's all misunderstanding. And he will always try to reason his way out of the clear evidence. It will cast blame on anyone and everyone other than you. Listen, the default mode of the human heart is self-justification. That's our default. We don't even have to try. It's like breathing. It's self-justification. It's almost impossible to escape. Now, let's just examine verses 7 to 10 real quick, and you can see the way that your flesh really should be handled. The king leaves the room in his wrath, and Haman pleads for his life to Esther to no avail right? No deals were offered to Haman to let him off the hook. This is number one. The way you should really deal with your flesh is if you're going to think surely, you know, something can be done to let me off the hook. Something can be arranged to assuage me of my guilt. Listen, number one is you should give no deals to the flesh. No deals. No, just as one last times. No deals. The second is no defense. The king comes in, finds him on the couch, complete impropriety, black bag over the head. He was done without a word. He was afforded no defense. Haman was afforded no defense, and you will always find a way to defend yourself and express how you have been falsely accused. And I love the murkiness of this particular part because he's on the couch But he's not really trying to force himself on the queen, right? That's what the king accuses him of. But he's really pleading for his life. When the king comes in, it kind of misunderstands the situation a little bit. And I love that because whenever you get caught out in your flesh, whenever you really get caught and you know that you're guilty... There's always that little bit in there where people go too far or they accuse you of a little something that you didn't do, and you'll grab onto that with both hands to declare your innocence. Whenever you know, overall, you are guilty as sin. But you'll grab onto the murkiness of that situation. That's why I love that, because that's real life. We do that. We'll find that one little bit where people went a little too far or they said one thing that you didn't do, even though you were guilty of 10 others that they don't know about. And we'll grab onto that in order to defend ourselves. You should afford yourself, your flesh, no defense, just like with Haman. We must fight against this. Also, there should be no doubt. There should be no doubt or denials about your guilt. This right here is the best part. Of the whole chapter, because this is when Harbona comes in the room. Now, Harbona, he is he is my favorite part of the chapter because it's like hilarious. Okay, so you imagine the scene, right? The scene is is that Haman is standing there, he's probably tied up, he's got a black bag on his head, and he, he's already done, right? I mean, he is he is already cooked. And Harbona, the Chamberlain, kind of pops in and he says, Oh, by the way, don't forget. Just a little extra, Haman built like a gallows in his backyard. It's like 50 cubits high, and he did it in order to murder Mordecai. You remember him, king. He was the guy that saved your, your life like two chapters back. Yeah. Do you remember that, Haman? And Haman's like standing there with a black bag over his head. He's like, for reals, Harbona. Like, it's not bad enough already. And Harbona's like, hey, sorry about that. I'll catch you later. Or, I guess not. (laughs) And then he, like, runs out. That's the way I imagine Harbona being the Chamberlain. And that's just fantastic. I mean, it's already, he's already cooked, and Harbona just has to add that little cherry on the top. Don't forget, you know, I love that bit. There should be no doubt. The evidence was brought in. There should be no doubt about your guilt. Harbona provides the noose that really hung him, he adds the proverbial nail in the coffin. And if we're going to confront and conquer our flesh, then we must be caught. We must be bag over the head guilty before our heavenly father. That's what Romans chapter 3, verses 9, uh, chapter 3, verse 19 says. He says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. Why? that every mouth should be stopped and all the world may become, what? Guilty before God. We have to come to that place when we're confronted with the holiness of God where our mouths stop. And we're just guilty. We have to be able to see our own guilt. We have to relinquish all of our justifications I'm telling you, this is thwarting your Christian life, is your justifications. This is when, if you do finally just relinquish your justifications and you don't offer any defense, you don't offer any deals, there's no doubt or denials about your guilt, when you finally can come to God and say, I'm guilty, when you can finally go to your wife or finally go to that person or finally go to your pastor and say, I did it. I got no defense. I don't need you to understand me. I don't need you to understand my problems, because we're just so hoping that if they would understand what we had been through, that they wouldn't think that we're so bad. Whenever we are that bad, and we have to bring out all the secrets, because we're hoping, even whenever we come down and we confess, we don't confess everything. We still keep a few secrets back. Even when we finally come clean, quote unquote, to our wife, We still spin the story a little bit. We don't quite bring it all out on the table. We just need to be that kind of caught, red-handed, bag over the head, guilty before God, before man. It's only when we finally relinquish our justifications that we're able really to see God's grace. Because, see, we can't just stay there. I can't leave you there because then you go home and you'd be like, man, that message sucked. How depressing was that? You know, we need to be able to come to God's grace. It's only when we become guilty that we can really understand his grace. There is something in the story that is so easily missed. And we know it is there, but we are often blinded by it because of all of our justifications that cover our eyes. But without God's grace, we only have two choices. We can live in a state of denial about our guilt or we can live in a state of despair over our guilt. Without his grace, that's really the only two choices you have because you are guilty. So without his grace, all we can have is either a denial of our guilt or despair over our guilt. But we must not forget where we are in the story. We must not forget where all of this confrontation happens Where does this confrontation take place? Do you remember? She had two of these banquets set up, one banquet and then she had a second banquet. Do you remember what kind of banquet this is? It is a banquet of wine. The only thing is they're sitting across the table and she says he is the evil villain. The only thing that sits between Esther and the evil Haman is the wine. It's a banquet of wine. And as they come around the table, you can see in your mind that cup sitting there. You know, the Lord has appointed a banquet of wine for us to observe whenever we come around the Lord's table so we can remember the blood that he has shed for us. Why does he do that? Why does he have us remember the cup? It was at that final supper as the disciples gathered around the table that Jesus lifted up the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, which was shed for you. You see, this is how we deal with our flesh. We recognize our guilt, but we have to then come back to the cross and remember his grace. And remember his grace. We have to remember the blood of the cross. That is why he ordained the Lord's table. So that we would continually come back to the cross. And examine and judge ourselves rightly. And then remember his grace. So look back to Esther chapter 7. uh, Esther chapter 7 verses 7 through 10. Okay let's look back there for a second. It says that the king in his wrath. Got up and left the room. He was so angry, he was like, listen, i got to take a breather. I don't even know what to, I can't even look at you. And he turned his back on Haman, and Haman knew his goose was cooked when the king got up and turned his back on him and walked out. Did you know that the same thing happened to your Lord Jesus Christ? In Mark chapter 14, verse 36... Jesus Christ said, Abba, Father. He says, <clears throat> in the ninth hour, I'm sorry, Matthew 27, 46, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani." He says, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he was on the cross, God, because of his sin that was put upon him for us, turned his back. On his son, and he did that for us. Just the same way that the king turned his back on Haman and walked out of the room, the same thing happened to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And not only that, but when he walked out of the room, what did Haman do? Haman pled for his life to Esther, didn't he? And you know what? Your Lord Jesus Christ did the same thing in Mark fourteen thirty six. is where he said, Abba, Father. He said, all things are possible unto thee. He said, take away this cup from me. Do you remember that? That cup of wine, that cup of wrath, he said, take away this cup from me. He's saying, if there's any way at all that you could redeem this people without me dying and being separated, I don't want to die. I don't want to be separated from you. I don't want to be reckoned among the sinners. He didn't want to do that. Obviously, he didn't want to do that. He said, if there's any other way, he says, but still, not my will be done, but your will. Now, listen. Listen. He pled for his life. And do you know what our father said? Do you know what he said to sin? He said, no deals. He said no to his son. His only begotten son. The one that this whole universe is for the one that he loves, the one who is lifted up above everyone else, he said no to his son so that he could say yes to you. Now let me ask you something. Do you think you deserve a deal? He he gave no deals to his own son and you think you deserve one, right? Right? whenever you blow it, whenever you get involved in sin, but you want everyone to make deals... You want everyone to hear your defense? That's what he did. He, he is afforded no defense. Remember, Haman was afforded no defense. The same thing with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shearer is dumb. so he opened not his mouth. Did you know that whenever he was condemned, that your Lord offered not one word of defense, even though he was innocent. Do you think that you deserve defense? You're so eager to defend yourself all the time. But you don't understand, Brian. No, you don't understand. This is what your Lord did for you. Even though he was innocent, he took the blame and he stood there while they slapped him in the face, while they mocked him, while they falsely accused him and said all manner of evil against him. He stood there and he took it and he said not one word of defense for himself. And he did that for you. And just like Haman, remember the king said, well, if he built the gallows, then go hang him on the gallows that he built. And our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was hanged on the cross. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You see, we are the ones who are guilty We are the Haman of the story, but Christ, because he loved us so much, he became the villain in our place. He took all of our guilt on himself so that he could give all of his innocence and righteousness to us. That's what he did. And we can never understand the depths of his grace until we're willing to own Our guilt. You can never really understand the depths of His grace until you begin to own and understand the depths of your guilt. That's why Paul prays for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. Don't turn there. But Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 19, he's praying for them. He's saying, listen, I wish that you could understand the breadth and the depth and the width of his love. I wish you could understand the great love that Jesus Christ has for you. And that's the reason why today we can talk about the cross with people. And Jesus died on the cross and they paint paintings of it and we talk about it. It so flippantly and we're like oh yeah I've heard that story and people are like yeah I've heard that before and it's no big deal to us and the reason why we can do that and we can just pass it by so easily is because we because of all the justifications and how people keep telling us how awesome that we are and people just don't understand and you're really a good person deep down and you can just walk right past the cross because in your eyes you don't ever do anything wrong. In your eyes, you've always got a justification for every single thing that you do. And that's the reason why we don't understand the depths of his love for us. We don't even see it. We kind of do a little bit. We see that he loves us, but we don't understand the full depths of his love because we never really are willing to deal with the depths of our guilt. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, There were these two that went to the temple. Remember, there's a Pharisee and he's praying and he's like, he's seeing this public in the center over there. And the Pharisee's like, man, I sure am glad I'm not like that guy. Right. And he's telling all the things to God. He's giving all of his defense. Man, I do this, and I do this, and man, and just me, and me, and there's more about me, and then let me tell you something about me, and it's just all this great stuff, but then you have this public in the center over there, and he doesn't even, he won't even look up to heaven. He's like, be merciful to me, a what? He knows that he's guilty before God. You see, the man who tries to justify himself always remains guilty, but the man who confesses his guilt is justified. When we confess our guilt and bring it to the cross and we remember his grace and his blood, that's when we become moved in our life with gratitude. When you finally get that black bag over the head, guilty as sin moment in your life, when you're, when you're, just, you're caught, and then you remember that he paid for that, even though he knew you were going to do it, that he loved you that much, and he paid for that one. And you come down to the front, and you're like, God, I can't believe I just did that. It was nobody's fault. It was all me. That was all me. And he's like, I paid for that one too. That's how much I loved you. You didn't even realize you were that bad. You ever been in one of those moments when you do something, and you're like, I didn't even realize I was that bad of a person. And Christ is like, I paid for that too. I paid for all of it. You don't even know what's coming that I've paid for. You become filled with gratitude. That's what moves us to pursue holy service to the Lord. That's why we're moved to love Christ with all of our heart. Because we've let go of our justifications. We recognize the depths of our guilt. We realize the cost of his grace and we respond with gratitude. You remember in Luke chapter 7, I've got to finish In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is sitting with another Pharisee. He's in his house, and this woman comes in, and she's this wicked sinner, right? And she comes in, and she just goes down to his feet, and she begins to weep at his feet and begins to wash his feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair. It's such a pathetic sight She's just so grateful to be with Jesus. She's just washing his feet with her tears. And this Pharisee is over there, and he's looking at her, and he's saying and within himself, he's like, listen, if this guy was really a prophet, there's no way in the world that he would let a sinner like that touch him. This is, what this, this is how much this guy thought of himself. And Jesus looks at him, and he tells him a little parable about two guys that owed money and he says, but this guy was uh, forgiven his debt, and it was a large debt, and this guy was forgiven, and it was a small debt. And he says, who do you think was more appreciative? Who do you think loved more? And he says, well, obviously, the one who was forgiven more. And he says, you have, you have rightly said, and I came into your house, you offered me no kiss. You offered me no water to wash my feet, and yet this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet, Or to wash my feet with her tears and to dry my feet with her hair. That's the reason why she loves much. Because she has been forgiven much. And the reason why you love little is because in your mind, you have been forgiven little. That's the reason we don't love him the way that we should. Your justifications... Get in the way of you loving Christ the way that you should. That is the reason why we love Christ little. Because we don't understand how much we have been forgiven. Because we're blinded by our justifications. This is how we conquer and confront our flesh. We have a come to Jesus meeting. We come around the table with just our flesh And our Father, we recognize our guilt. We realize the cost of his grace. That's how we're able to look in the first Corinthians and be like, you know, we know that fornicators and adulterers and effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind and thieves and covetous and drunkards and revilers, they will never inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul says, listen, because of the grace of God, he says, such were some of you. But by the grace of God, you've been washed clean. You can look at that verse and say, I'm not that anymore. Even though I'm guilty of that. In God's eyes, I'm still not that because of his grace. And you respond with gratitude. And you know that this has happened. Because you begin to kiss his feet. And you begin to wash his feet with your tears. Do you remember last thing? then I'm done. Do you remember in the garden and Adam had sinned and God brings them all right in front of him? What is it that God asks Adam? We've all heard the story. We all know the answer. What He asks him. He says, come on, class. What does he ask him? What did you do? What did you do, Adam? And we know everyone always says, well, yeah, and God knew what he did, but he asked, you know, we all know He knew what he did, but he asked him, what did you do, Adam? Now, why does he ask him? Because he's given him a chance. He's given Adam a chance to come clean. He's given Adam a chance to just admit his guilt, to say it. I'm guilty. I did it. I'm wrong. And what did Adam do? What did he do? He blamed his bride. He blames somebody else. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the second Adam took his bride's blame? That's what he did for us. The first Adam put all the blame on his bride, the second Adam took all the blame from his bride. What about you? There's so much about this mission that we can do in the power of our flesh, and our flesh just rules our life all the time and the reason why that we're not so moved, the way that, the reason why that that the, the Fives can go to Pakistan, the reason why people can do the things that they do in the mission is because they are so moved and motivated by a love for Christ, because they've had a moment in their life when they came to the cross and they say, I don't deserve this. They're like that woman. They come to his feet and they kiss his feet, and they, they have tears in their eyes because they know and the scales have been brought back and they've seen that they're just guilty before God, and even Even though they're guilty, he loved them so much that he has washed them clean and given them a righteousness that they don't deserve, and they just have no other response but to just charge hell and tell everyone that they know about Jesus Christ. They are filled with a gratitude in their life, and every step that they take is just like a song of thanksgiving. They're filled with gratitude. And some of us, we hear the songs and we hear the sermons and we're just like, kind of boring, no big deal, right? Why? The thing that is getting in the way is our justifications. Are you here tonight? Are you hiding your guilt? Are you trying to justify yourself? Are you filled with secrets? Are you constantly blaming others? Are you constantly trying to convince yourself and others that you're right? Are you hiding your sin? Are you tired yet of avoiding your guilt? Because if you are, if this is you, and you just won't ever really come to grips with your guilt, whatever it is, I promise you, you will never really know his love for you, and you will never really love him back. It's time for you to turn yourself in. It's time for you to be caught red handed. Just come and confess it. The Bible says that people who confess their sin, all they get is mercy. Just confess it. All of it. Let that Harbona come from the background and say, oh, don't forget that. (laughs) All the secrets, the only power that they have on you is their ability to be kept in the dark. It's time. It's time to just come clean. To let loose of that thing in your life. To just confess it. It's time to just come back to the cross. And don't stay in your guilt. Remember the grace. So that you can be flooded with gratitude. No deals. No defense. No doubt or denials about your guilt. For where sin abounds, his grace does much more abound. It is for only those who have been forgiven much who can love much. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.